Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to today's uh, Berkman uh, Lunch Talk um, uh, featuring Jeff Manaw. Uh, and uh, before I introduce Jeff, um, I'd like to just do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, uh, first of all, it's important to note that these lunch talks are webcast, where um, these talks happen under surveillance. Um, and so as you have opportunities to interact, uh, to ask questions, you'll want to bear in mind that you're sharing this for posterity. Um, second of all, um, uh, there's a hashtag. The default hashtag for these lunch talks is hashtag Berkman. I don't know though, Jeff, do you have a hashtag for Burglar's Guide to the City that you'd like people to make use of? I don't, I don't have a, a preferred hashtag, but I suppose hashtag Burglar Guide makes, makes sense. Right on. Okay. So hashtag Berkman if you want to share outputs from this talk in real time on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, and so with that, um, let me just turn to introducing um, this person to my left, Jeff Manaw, because I'm having um, this delicious experience of which I never tire this internet experience of meeting an old friend for the first time face to face. Um, I've uh, known Jeff's work um, for 10 years uh, and, uh, uh, and, and have interacted with Jeff um, in virtual space, um, corresponded over the years off and on, um, and have always been inspired and enlivened by the work that he does. Um, I knew him in the first instance through his, um, his blog, building blog, um, out of which this book uh, um, issued. Um, some years ago. Um, Building Blog is this, and, and it's an ongoing vital um, presence uh, to this day, uh, uh, an ongoing searching um, entanglement with architecture, the built environment, um, uh, and, and the ways in which uh, space and, and time uh, and environment and design uh, kind of all come together um, fruitfully and magically and problematically often as well um, in our imaginations, in our social lives, in our cultural lives, in our history. Um, a lot of that um, entanglement has to do with digital space, with technology and infrastructure, um, and both how technology and infrastructure uh, 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 inveigle themselves into the built environment and the world around us um, and how they impact that world. Um, but it's also crucial, I think, to Jeff's um, his kind of method as a thinker and a maker uh, and a writer, an explorer of these realms. Um, the fact that this is work that takes place in the open, uh, in public, thinking, uh, making ideas and speculation um, in online space, that at the same time also is a, is, is a profound exploration of um, of the world as well, the physical world as well. And I just wanted to read a short paragraph from Building Blog that gives a, an example to me of the kind of playful, speculative way that Jeff has melded um, uh, the digital and the physical um, in imagination as well as in actual space. Um, so, so in this very short passage, it's really a caption. Jeff's talking about the work of... Um, uh, Alexander Dragulescu from the Media Lab. Um, Alex was um, making um, visualizations of, of um, spam into kind of these amazing barbed angular um, construction sort of um, houses um, in real space. So, so Jeff writes um, that, uh, uh, so Alex's project uh, uh, is these, these kind of vast installation constructions generated by a computer program that's accept, that accepts as input junk email. Various patterns, keywords, and rhythms found in the text are translated into three-dimensional modeling gestures. Jeff writes, it is spam in architectural form. 
If you applied this to large-scale architectural design, you could actually live inside junk emails, computer viruses, and unsolicited ads for Viagra. You could also turn digital photo photographs of your last birthday party into elaborate architectural structures, export your PhD thesis as a five-level inhabitable object, transform every bank statement you've ever received into a small cubist city. Your whole DVD collection could be informationally represented as a series of large, angular buildings, or you could reverse the process and input SketchUp diagrams of Notre Dame Cathedral, generating an inbox-clogging river of spam. Email the Great Wall of China around the world in an afternoon. Turn the collected works of Mies van der Rohe into junk email and send it anonymously to the director of the National Building Museum, who then deletes it without knowing what it was. <laughs> um, so this kind of interpenetration of, um, of built space and the digital environment, digital objects and architectural objects in the imagination um, as much as in planning and design. Um, is what's always excited me about what Jeff does. Um, I'm curious, intensely curious, about The Burglar's Guide to the City. I have not had the chance to read it yet. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Jeff said to me yesterday that it's not about theft, it's not about stealing, but it is about a certain kind of criminal perspective, and I think that probably is a, a fitting motto for so many projects around the Berkman Center as well. <laughs> um, so without further ado, I turn it over to Jeff Mana. Um, well, yeah, well, thank you, Matthew, for the generous introduction and also the reminder of the, the spam uh, architecture project, which, which is a fun one. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming uh, on, a, on a rainy Tuesday and uh, to hear more about burglary and architecture. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, and thanks for the invitation and, and hosting me here. Um, so yeah, as, as Matthew mentioned, what I wanted to do this afternoon, or, or just barely this afternoon, um, was introduce you to some of the themes of A Burglar's Guide to the City. Um, it's a new book of mine that just came out uh, actually a week ago today. It uh, came out on April 5th. Um, and uh, explain what is A Burglar's Guide to the City? Why would someone interested in architecture also be interested in burglary? Um, how does burglary differ from theft? Um, those kinds of things. And then I've just chosen a couple things that I thought would be more interesting to bring to a Berkman Center audience. So there are an awful lot of things in the book that would be interesting to discuss, but they're also very um, maybe particular to architecture or particular to a very um, physical engagement with the built environment. And so some of those I'm going to leave on the back burner. Um, we can get to those in a, in a conversation afterward. Um, but for the time being, I'll, I'll foreground certain things that I think have at least some resonance uh, either literally or metaphorically with some of the themes of digital security or um, the cyber realm, broadly speaking. Um, I tend not to use the word cyber very often, but I, I, might, I, might, uh, I might pop up once or twice in, during my talk, if you'll forgive me. Um, so, yeah, so why... Uh, oh, and then also, if you've got questions, if it's a genuinely burning question, feel free to ask during the talk, but I'll, I'll be wrapping up in only 20 or 25 minutes, and so if you, if you can save towards the end, I think that might be better, because there's an awful lot of themes that I think will, will come out um, between now and then. And then Matthew will help me uh, moderate uh, some questions, and also I look forward to that. Um, but yeah, so why, why a book on burglary? What, what is it that would compel someone who writes about architecture to write about this particular crime? Um, what is this crime's relationship to architecture and the built environment? Um, so as Matthew said, yeah, burglary is not theft. Um, a lot of people, including friends and family, have asked me, uh, you know, why, why did you write a book about thieves? You know, why, why do you want to take things that don't belong to you? 
And um, the, the, the short answer is that not only uh, is, is that not an interest of mine, but also, luckily, I did not write a book about theft. I wrote a book about burglary. Um, what's interesting to me about burglary is that it is an architectural crime. You cannot be accused of burglary unless you're inside a building. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about what constitutes a building from a legal point of view, because it's actually it's, it's, uh, not at all straightforward, and it's really quite interesting. Um, and you, in fact, don't need to be stealing anything to be accused of burglary. In fact, you can be accused of burglary if you have the intention to commit a crime uh, or if you commit a felony within an architectural space. Uh, an example I give in the book is if you fire an unarmed handgun uh, in a mine in the state of California, you can be accused of burglary. You've committed a felony inside an, arti an artificially constructed space, and so that would technically be an act of burglary. Uh, and then similarly, if I cost you on the sidewalk... Uh, and take your wallet. Uh, that's again, that's unlikely to happen. I'm, I'm not a thief. Um, but if, if I were to do that, it would not be burglary because we would not be inside an architectural structure. Um, so again, there are some really interesting exceptions to that rule. Um, you, you may or may not have remembered in uh, maybe, what was it, two years ago, uh, two German artists, or rather, the, the, the chronology of the story was that the two American flags on top of the Brooklyn Bridge mysteriously turned into white flags overnight. Um, that it, it appeared to be some sort of, uh, you know, prank indicating maybe mass surrender on behalf of, behalf of uh, New York City or the United States. But it turned out it was two German artists who actually went up, stole the American flags, and replaced them with white flags that were of the same size and shape. Um, the reason why I mention that is because in so doing, they scaled a chain-link fence, and they went into a space uh, that then allowed them to get to the top of the, uh, kind of basically walk up to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge and, and take these flags down. Um, so whilst the area that was surrounded by fencing was not in any recognizable sense architecture, um, it was interesting that the NYPD made the argument that in entering into a uh, legally defined space, not only could you get these guys with things like vandalism or uh, trespassing, but you could charge them with burglary because they entered into what could be legally recognized as, a, as an architectural space. Um, but so in any case, uh, and, and we'll come back to some of that, the other thing that just struck me was that, you know, especially coming from the world of architecture, architects, and perhaps this is true in, in the technology field as well, but architects love to think that they're the only people who care about architecture. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, you know, it's somewhere between a, a point of pride that as if only architects are, see the beauty in the built environment and are willing to discuss it, um, but there's also a sense of overlooked, um, almost a melancholy, you know, here we are wanting to tell everyone about Le Corbusier and no one will listen to us, uh, you know, if only more people could talk about architecture. Um, but what interested me is that, in fact, there is another architectural conversation going on, um, not only just that you can talk about buildings with almost anybody in your family or your, or your friends, even if it's not, uh, you know, an academic conversation, um, but there's this other conversation about the built environment happening, and it's happening in the world of criminality. Um, so if you read a police report, um, there was, in fact, a bank heist yesterday in Brooklyn um, where people tunneled down uh, by cutting through the roof of an HSBC in Brooklyn and, and stole nearly $300,000 in cash. Um, but when you listen to police talk about it, uh, when you read police reports, when you talk to FBI agents who are investigating bank crime, um, when you listen to business owners complain or discuss how someone got into their jewelry store or check cashing facility, um, or, of course, if you talk to burglars and you look at how they look at the built environment, if you learn from them how they look at the built environment, you realize that they're talking about architecture, too. In fact, you can see it in a heist film you know, where everybody gathers around floor plans and they're pointing out how to get from one room to the next, how to get from another building to another. Um, these are, these are uh, embarrassingly uh, basic conversations. I, it, it, wouldn't, you know, it sounds like a Jim Carrey film that you can't figure out how to get from one room to the next, uh, and yet this has high drama in the context of a heist. So I really want to talk... Um, 
focus on this notion that burglary and architecture have an intimate relationship. And then, in fact, burglary and the heist film, uh, these are, these are, it's, it's the most architectural genre of all. Um, so let's get back to this notion of breaking the clothes. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this in a second. So, so I mentioned the idea of a mine might be, you could burglarize a mine by shooting a gun in it. You could burglarize the Brooklyn Bridge by climbing a fence. And so this comes down to this thing called breaking the clothes. It's a really interesting legal argument. Um, the clothes is, is basically the same word as an enclosure. Um, so you can think of it as an invisible geometric plane that defines an architectural shape and can be admitted to a court of law. Um, so, for example, if there is a Jeep Wrangler parked on the street with its hard top off, uh, if there is a convertible uh, parked on the street as well, if there is a screened-in porch that perhaps doesn't have its screens installed, um, if you have an open window on the ground floor of your house, uh, all, there's, there's no physical matter separating inside from outside, and yet, nonetheless, there is this legally recognized planar geometry, which is the close. And so this gets into these really, really complicated arguments, and, in fact, there's a really interesting sort of... Uh, um, almost like a sub-theme amongst legal theorists who have a collective feeling of exasperation at the fact that you can effectively enter any kind of complicated geometric, you know, even these spam architecture things that Matthew was, was, was talking about. Um, you could enter these into court of law as legally recognized evidence against burglary as long as you have a talented enough or a rhetorically compelling lawyer who could point out that, for example, connecting, one could argue that I, you know, I am inside a close, I am in a separate space from you guys because you can connect, say, this drop down to the uh, the floor or maybe even the corners of this plinth or podium to other parts of the room, and you can start defining this spider web of geometric shapes um, that then becomes legally admissible as architecture. Um, so it's a really fascinating and strange and abstract argument that I think uh, has potentially at least has resonance with uh, themes of, of, of tech and even tech security, but how buildings are defined legally is something that I think is, 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 a, is a really uh, strange and almost Borgesian um, example of where architecture and its legal definition goes, goes awry. Um, but so the burglar then has this relationship to those geometric planes or to those interiors uh, and even to the exterior of a building that is one, uh, rather than one of aesthetics or of, uh, of even historical appreciation, it's one of strategy, it's one of stealth, and it's one of infiltration. Um, so a burglar would see the outside of a building and where we might see uh, craftsmanship or historical resonance that something might be in a certain style or might be... Uh, uh, you know, uh, making reference to even historical events. Uh, a burglar will see shadows that they can hide within. They might see uh, opportunities for stealth or silence. They might, be, they might see uh, handholds to get from one floor to the next. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tactical engagement with the same things that we might otherwise simply gloss over as architecture. Um, and that comes up through, throughout the book, but I think will also be clear throughout, throughout the day. And so I really like that idea, as well as I find that it could have resonance with some of the, the notion of, of digital security, which is that you know, something appears to be uh, have, not have use value, but seen from the right angle, you realize, in fact, it's a way in. Um, it's, not, it's a way that you can slip into a structure. It's something that you can put to use in a, in a sort of diagonal sense, I suppose you could say. And so again, that's the, that's the, the, the burglar's physical engagement with, with the built environment. And so in the book, an example I give of this is a, is a gentleman named Bill Mason. Um, so I, I thought I would mention Bill as a kind of preamble to, to um, the, the real example I want to talk about. But so Bill Mason was a cat burglar. Um, he wrote a fairly interesting book called uh, Confessions of a Master Jewel Thief. And uh, it details his uh, long and actually quite successful career um, stealing, as it were, uh, jewels from the rich and famous. Actually, one of his famous examples was he robbed... Johnny Weissmuller, who was the actor who played Tarzan, and uh, he did so by swinging from the 
balconies on the on the outside of his high rise. Uh, so there was a, a pretty amazing meta level of irony there. Um, but so it was funny when Bill Mason wrote this book. He was then invited onto Wolf Blitzer's uh, show on CNN, and uh, it was interesting because his answer as to why did you become a burglar uh, it was almost an entirely architectural answer. You know, he just said, uh, you know, Wolf, I liked buildings. Um, but but um, uh, even even more than that, though, he explained that he effectively kind of grew up with building superintendents. Uh, you know, his parents weren't necessarily very hands-on, and so he found himself being stewarded. Uh, into adolescence and adulthood by all of the people who know the back matter of the city. Um, what I think is quite interesting about that is that that means that for him, it was just as natural to, say, go through that door uh, or to take the door to the right of the ele elevators, the one that people like myself tend not to take uh, for lack of access. Uh, you know, he is used to the notion of the emergency stairs. He's used to the idea of being in attic spaces or rooftops or cellars. Uh, maintenance corridors and that kind of thing. Um, in the book, I refer to it as, as, as sort of the, the dark matter of the built environment. Um, and it's a realm that he's very used to being in, and it's a, room, it's a realm that he was very comfortable with. And so I think it's really fascinating that this notion that if you are familiar with and even fluent in the, the other city, the backside of architecture, almost like the counter-architecture, uh, you know, the things that make this room possible, the ventilation shaft that would be above this drop ceiling, et cetera, if you're comfortable with that aspect of architecture, then you're s sort of being primed for seeing the built environment through the eyes of a burglar. And I think that's a really ex interesting example from, from, from Bill Mason. But um, it got much more interesting, actually, when I then spoke to this gentleman uh, named Jack Daxwin. So Jack, uh, it was a pseudonym of a Toronto-based cat burglar. In fact, at one point, uh, my wife and I joked that it was actually Tim Valley. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, so, so Jack Daxwin is now working in the private security industry, and his current employer doesn't know about his background as a burglar, and so thus quested, uh, requested uh, anon anonymity in the, in the book. Um, but so Jack Daxman was a really, really interesting figure and also one of the more interesting perspectives on the built environment. Um, so I don't want to rag on uh, architects all day, um, but I, I thought it was, it was very interesting that his perspective on the built environment was, was far more interesting than even people I used to teach with at Columbia, for example, who have a very interesting historical or theoretical point of view, but his very strange uh, abstract and uh, tactical relationship to the built environment made him, I think, one of the more interesting architectural speakers I've, I've ever spoken to. Um, and so an example of that was that, similar to Bill Mason, he was very used to the backsides of architecture, to all the, all the, all the spaces that uh, uh, someone like myself tends not to enter. Um, but so in particular, though, he gravitated toward this one point that really, that really stuck out to me, which is that he had figured out a way to use Toronto's fire code as a targeting mechanism. And so he explained that the fire code of the city is so regulated, so efficient, and so ubiquitously applied to the built environment that you could read the external facing uh, details of a building and determine from the outside without ever setting foot inside um, very accurate uh, estimations about how that building might be uh, internally, how it would be laid out, how many apartments might be on each floor, um, how distant the doors to each apartment would be to the fire exits uh, due to regulations for uh, personal safety, even how many people would be allowed to live in a structure of a certain size or age or district of the, of the city. And so if you know the city well enough, and once again, I think the sort of cyber examples are quite uh, compelling here, or resonances are quite compelling. If you know the code of the city, um, if you understand the regulations that created all of these things that we see, in which case architecture here becomes almost like an epiphenomenon of code, then you can judge without even going into those buildings what you're going to encounter when you, when you do, in fact, go inside. And so this notion that fire code presents a vulnerability when seen from that point of view um, is something that really shocked me, actually, and seemed like something 
not many people would consider the idea that these sort of, you know, the zoning of your neighborhood or the regulations that are meant to keep you safe, ironically, are the ones that are being used against you in the case of, of Jack Daxman. Um, other parts of fire code that he was explaining were uh, which floors and buildings would have unalarmed fire exits, in which case he would deliberately hit apartments or hotel rooms on those floors, because then in a pinch, um, if the maid service shows up or if a resident comes home, you can then run to the emergency exit, open the door, and the alarm won't go off. So you can know you can get down to the ground floor without uh, giving away the, your, your escape route. And so, if you get, again, if you know which floors have alarmed doors, you know which ones you can hit. Or conversely, if you're a homeowner, and uh, it's important to recognize that all of this, of course, has a flip side, which is that you can use this information as well to keep yourself more, to secure yourself even more or remain safe. Um, then a homeowner, of course, if who lives on a floor that does not have an alarmed exit door now knows that there is a vulnerability that they need to, to shore up and that they are potentially more of a target for someone who sees the city through the, the lens of code and regulation. Um, but so he went further than that and pointed out some examples that these are things that uh, I had actually noticed myself, which, which uh, I, I'm sure other, uh, nearly everyone in the room will also have noticed that if you are um, invited to a friend's house, say, for dinner and you've never been there, you don't know how to get there, or they're having a party, you look up their address online, um, one of the first things I'll do is I'll just Google the address to get the map, I'll see where they are, and then I'll plot a route or have it plotted for me. But increasingly, um, the, the search results that come back are for real estate sites. Um, the number one hit is often Zillow, uh, or in New York City, it might be Corcoran or Douglas Elliman, et cetera. Um, if you click on these, which I've, I've started doing, uh, you know, which, which feels oddly voyeuristic despite it being a web search, um, you, know, you can learn really thing, puzzling things that perhaps your friends don't want you to learn, which are everything from exactly how much money they paid for the apartment, when they bought it, uh, how much the building sold for if they aren't an apartment or homeowner, um, but even more worryingly, you can get uh, floor plans. Uh, we, you know, we, my wife and I went to a, a house party in Harlem um, about maybe two and a half months ago, and before I'd even arrived, I had seen internal photographs of their home. Uh, I had looked at floor plans. Uh, these are just, uh, you know, these are in the first two, three uh, web searches. And so, uh, and also, you know, I should point out that yes, I did also look up my own house. And um, our, our, the, in fact, actually, somewhat ironically, our apartment at one point was the show apartment for this entire building that we live in now. And so, uh, it's it's voluminously documented uh, in, inside. And so, if you want to know where our balcony is, if you want to know where the fire exits are, if you want to know even what locks are installed on the front doors, you can basically see it in these photographs that are available online. Um, you can see where people's uh, circuit boards are if you need to do something to the power supply. You can see any number of different things that, that, that are given away for free, and you wouldn't expect these to be burglar's tools hiding in plain sight, and yet they are. Um, and so one of the things that, that is interesting there, then, is, is what are, if any, the limits, then, that you might want to impose on architectural information that is available about your home? Um, to give one quick example of, of, that really interested me there was the, actually uh, my wife's great aunt, uh, who uh, her late great aunt was an archaeologist um, and a really interesting actually historian in England. Um, and she worked for the National Trust. And uh, as, in, in part of her daily job was the documentation of old uh, historic architectural sites throughout England. And one of the things that came up that was really fascinating was that um, while, while working on stately homes that are either still privately owned and, and you know, part of them are opened up for tours or now are entirely run and operated by the state, uh, she was instructed to effectively you, to deliberately misdraw the floor plans. So if you show up and you take a tour of a, of a stately home and you're, and you're going through and following the guide, 
Um, the floor plan deliberately leaves off uh, rooms, uh, uh, you know, side corridors that you don't need to go into as a, as a visitor. Uh, and then specifically, uh, stairways were, were something that she was instructed never, never to document unless, unless it was vital for, for um, visitor access. And so what's interesting to me about that are, are a number of things. Um, you know, there's, it, you may be familiar with the concept of a trap street. Um, a trap street is a, is, a, is a non-existent route that is added to a map in order to catch other cartography firms when they copy your map because if it includes that street that is not real, you can all, all but instantly prove that they copied your map. It's, it's, it's copyright infringement. And so what's interesting about that is where the map differs from the territory, and in this sense, it's almost as if um, you, know, you could make the argument that through omission, uh, there are country houses throughout England that have secret rooms and passages, not because they were built that way, but because they don't appear in the publicly accessible floor plans. Um, but so I mentioned that example as a, as a, as a long um, sort of digressive way to suggest that is there something that we could learn from in this example of uh, trap streets or deliberately misleading floor plans that may or may not be useful for home security? I'm not suggesting that that is a good idea. I'm simply asking that as a, as a kind of discussive question so that perhaps we can, we can circle back to that um, in a few minutes. Um, but also, so Daxman, uh, Jack Daxman also pointed out something that um, works on both sides of the law, and that is the fact that uh, when you move into a new suburban development, for example, or if there's a new multi-unit apartment building under construction, um, unless it's a Gary, uh, you know, m many times the uh, individual apartments will have very similar floor plans that are repeated maybe, uh, there'll be two or three plans that are repeated multiple times throughout the building. Or in the suburbs, there might be mirror images of certain plans, but fundamentally there are five or six housing types that are then repeated over a, a 35 to 45 house uh, subdevelopment. Sub and so he pointed out the obvious tactical use of this knowledge, which is that if you know how to break into one floor plan, uh, you know, if you can flip it in your head, or maybe you don't even need to, but you effectively know how to break into not just one house in that area, but six houses, 10 houses, 15 houses. And that also works in multi-unit apartment buildings, where if you understand the layout of the um, A plan, you can break into apartment 2A, 3A, 4A, et cetera, all the way up to the top. Um, and so as a way of the burglar looking at the building, I think that that's, a, that's also an interesting example of things that don't stand out as security threats, which you then realize that if someone above you was broken into and they have a similar floor plan and they too keep their passports in a certain closet or they have a fireproof safe and only, there's only one part of the, of the apartment that makes sense to do that um, and you also happen to have your safe in that closet or in that room or et cetera, et cetera, uh, then you might want to rethink that once someone has broken into a plan similar to yours. But of course, this works from the other side of the law. There's an example I give in the book of a, um, I read a lot of police memoirs, which is a pretty funny and strange memoir or genre to, to become uh, uh, compulsively, uh, to, to, to read compulsively. Um, but the, the, the memoirs of retired police and FBI agents are actually really interesting tactical insights into how they look at the city. And so one example of those was a, a book by a gentleman named Michael Cadella, who was a retired NYPD detective who specifically worked in the, in the housing division, so public housing complexes and that kind of thing. Um, but so he made the point as well that from a police point of view, it's also very useful because if you are targeting uh, criminals who live in very large housing blocks and you become very familiar with certain apartment layouts or the layouts of entire floors or buildings, then as a police unit, um, it almost becomes a sort of a, 
um, what, what would be the word, like a criminological groundhog day. You're, you're responding to different crimes, but in the exact same environmental circumstances. You're raiding the same apartment over and over again, just on different floors. And so that plays, uh, that has a tactical use from both sides of the law, as, as do most of these the things that I've been pointing out. Um, so in any case, just to continue moving, um, one, of the, one of the things that is really interesting is that burglary, in fact, despite the length to which I've been discussing it, is actually going down quite precipitously. Um, burglary in New York City alone has gone down 87% since 1990. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, that's, that's a, a, an astonishing drop. Um, it actually got so, uh, burglary is down so much uh, worldwide, except for China, which is interesting. Um, we could maybe talk about that later. Um, that the Economist ran a, a funny story that was, uh, the title was, Where Have All the Burglars Gone? <laughs> and uh, what I love about it is that it almost sounded mournful. Um, you know. And um, Jack Daxman actually even pointed that out, that uh, there was a sense of melancholy in his chosen career, uh, which I think perhaps precipitated his change to this other side of the law, to work in security, um, which was that he had once felt that there was a almost romantic engagement, uh, a George Clooney-esque um, sort of caper-filled lifestyle of being a burglar. And now, you know, you look around and you realize that there's no one else out there. Where have all the burglars gone? Um, and it's almost as if he just gave up. He sort of, uh, you know, he came back from his vacation and, and, and took a job. Um, but so, so if burglary is going down that far, but yet we are seeing this, the rise of these new sources of information about the built environment, um, you know, we're seeing the rise of uh, the access, getting access to things like photographs of one another's internal apartments, or internal photographs, rather, uh, you know, where we can look up each other's floor plans. Um, you know, it sounds like a kind of a kumbaya moment in society, but yet we could also use those things against one another. So are we potentially setting ourselves up for a momentary flipping of the balance of power where burglars have the tools on their side again, they have the knowledge on their side again, and there might be a, a yet another uptick in burglary statistics? Um, it'll be interesting simply to see if that plays out and what are the, 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 the risks of, of access to these kinds of tools. Um, and so, yeah, so the question then would be, would this combination of analog and digital burglary tools lead to a return of burglary's uh, previous, uh, you know, sort of a threat to, to, to architecture and to, and to us? And then also, how do we resist and protect ourselves from that? Um, so just another couple quick things I just wanted to mention before throwing this open for a conversation. Um, Burglary sounds like something that's very, and in fact, actually, the overwhelming majority of burglaries are just, uh, they're not committed by the brightest individuals. You know, the example that I, I was talking to my wife about recently was um, a guy who broke into a kitchen of a restaurant and knocked over a bag of flour. Uh, he stepped in the flour. He walked home and left white footprints all the way to his, his front door, and he was soon arrested. Uh, and you'd be really shocked, actually, or maybe you wouldn't be, um, if you look up. Uh, it, there's so many hits on this, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, but of burglars who rob houses uh, during a snowfall, and uh, the police literally just follow this, the tracks in the footprints back to their, their home. Um, you're, not always, you're not really dealing with the, the brightest members of society, despite the examples that I was, I was speaking about previously, who are the exceptions to the rule, not the rule. Um, but so... Uh, uh, amidst all of this, then, the, you know, it, it sounds like uh, burglary is something that might just attack or, or rather target your apartment or just your building, or it might be uh, pulled off by someone who is only vaguely competent. Um, and yet, what, about, what are the prospects of a, of a kind of super burglary? How big can burglary be um, before, you know, you have to upgrade it to a, a different type of crime entirely? Um, there's a great short novel that, um, that I still think someday should be adapted for film um, called The Score by Richard Stark. And... Uh, 
it's it's got a great uh, opening scene where a bunch of people meet uh, at a, in a kind of country lodge. They're around a table. One of them has a slide projector. It feels like they're about to attend a university lecture. Um, and the gentleman starts showing maps and photographs of this town. It's a mining town in, I believe, south, south or, or possibly North Dakota. And um, you know, it's, 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 it's a funny scene because the guy seems really hesitant to admit what it is that he's showing them. But then suddenly, everybody in the room kind of realizes like, what is being proposed. And it's that the entire town, uh, is, it's, there's only one way in and out. There's only one police station that can be commandeered. The entire town is, is set up geographically, architecturally, and urbanistically to be the target of, of, a, uh, of a super burglary. They'll just rob the whole place. Um, so I mentioned that because it sounds like, okay, surely that's impossible. Um, but it was interesting, uh, a couple of years back, there was a case that you may or may not have read about where a city, uh, I believe he was in potentially a fireman, but a, a, a city worker in, in New York City retired. And when he did so, he then had a set of keys that he put on eBay, and, uh, and, and it led to a, a minor security um, kind of freak out in the city because what these keys were... Uh, were the keys that are used by emergency first responders to uh, bring all the elevators in the high-rise back down to the ground floor during the event of a fire, uh, to get access to subway tunnels, to go through all the doors that, you know, we don't, or I'll speak for myself, that I don't have keys to enter, um, uh, to get into water mains, to get into all the kinds of the parts of the city that have locks on them but might perhaps escape notice precisely because there's no reason that you might have a key for that kind of thing. Um, but so, of course, if the wrong people get access to the right keys, you set up a very uh, disastrous uh, scenario. And so um, sort of adding to the, the bizarre nature of the story, an undercover reporter for the New York Post um, actually purchased the keys. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, according to this reporter, uh, verified that they do, in fact, work and that uh, you could, in fact, basically, you know, in a James Bond-like way, seize control of the city using these keys that I'm, I'm no, you could, of course, uh, mass duplicate. Um, uh, to go back briefly to Jack Daxman, he pointed out that in, in Canada there's a, rough, there's a vaguely similar key. Uh, they're called crown keys, apparently, but those are the keys that are used to get into the lobbies of buildings in order to deliver mail. So if you've ever wondered how postal workers you get into your, the lobby of, a, of your building to drop things off, uh, packages, letters, et cetera, they're using a key to the city that, were, once again, were that to be stolen, um, could set up some uh, quite devious and ubiquitous burglary scenarios. But so when postal workers are, are mugged in Canada, apparently one of the leading theories that the police uh, investigate is that the, the, the mugger um, or assailant were, was, on, was trying to get a hold of, of these keys to, to have universal access to buildings around the city. So I'll just mention that. I think, again, you know, this notion of, of, of uh, omnipresent uh, keys and, and uh, possibilities of entry, I think, is something that will be fun to discuss. Um, and then finally, uh, just a very brief mention. Um, one of the other things I, I do in the book is I interview some game designers. Um, and I just mentioned that because in speaking to game designers and how they, look, how they engage with architectural environments and the structures that they design for things like games of heists, um, games of burglary, games of stealth, um, it's a very interesting and, and peculiar relationship to architecture because, of course, as one of the game designers points out to me, um, if you want to design a something in a game that can't be broken into, it's incredibly easy. Um, you know, there's no, there's no, that's not the challenge. The challenge is not how do I keep players out of a structure or how do I keep players from doing certain things. You can do that in a, in a, in a heartbeat. The question is how can you dial back security in an interesting way in order to introduce what one of them calls rhythms of vulnerability 
um, specifically to open up blind spots and holes and, and, and vulnerabilities in game environment levels so that players can have uh, can be challenged enough to have a good time breaking in, but also uh, can, in fact, the, the game itself can proceed. And so I think what's really interesting about that, then, is the notion that um, when you're dealing with architecture, specifically as something that someone wants to move through, through stealth, um, through illicit entry, through infiltration, uh, by climbing the outside of the building rather than going in through the front door, um, you, it's a very different design challenge. And of course, then you can flip that design challenge and look at it in terms of knowing now that people will do these things and that they might climb a tree branch to get to the second floor or they might drop down from a roof onto a terrace to then come in through the sliding door on your bedroom. Um, what are the steps that you can take to protect your house, yourself, your friends, family, et cetera, um, from the people that are looking at architecture this way? And so I think that's just the final takeaway um, is simply that all of this uh, you know, might sound like a sort of delight in the notion of misuse, and, and to a certain extent it is. I, I just find this very fascinating that there is a, um, you know, we just take for granted that we have to use buildings the way architects intended us to, the way that security teams steward us down certain hallways in certain ways. Um, but there is, in fact, a way of engaging with architecture that is much more hands-on, um, much more puzzling, I'll, I'll say, to, to deliberately use that word as if we're surrounded by a puzzle that we, don't, we haven't yet recognized for moral and ethical reasons. Um, but yet, at the same time, um, there is something about this that is just very straightforward, that we can think like burglars in order to protect ourselves better and to not fall prey to people who are, in fact, taking advantage of all the things that, um, through trust, we like to believe uh, other people aren't noticing. Um, so I think I'll, I'll leave it at that, and, and uh, we can throw it up to some questions and stuff. But thanks. Thank you, Jeff. That was that was great. Um, and, uh, and we're going to throw it open to questions. Uh, and and just the the modality for that will have uh, a couple of microphones. Uh, I have one, and my colleague Dan over here will circulate another. So if you have a question for Jeff, um, just get uh, the attention of one of us, and we'll bring a microphone to you so that we can get all of this um, properly surveilled. Um, uh, and I have a question to just to open things up. Um, uh, as as you were as you were talking about breaking the clothes. Um, in particular, um, that that concept really resonated for me in the context of the FBI's desire to break into the to the iPhone of the San Bernardino shooter. Um, and so, you know, the way in which you talked about um, burglary as a, uh, as a as a way for thinking about our own security and also thinking about the co-optation, as it were, of the the burglar's view um, by the police by by power of different kinds. I just wonder what the kind of resonances um, in terms of our digital lives, um, thinking like a burglar might have, for thinking about um, our, our digital domiciles, our digital security, our digital identities, um, and then maybe also how, how, how do these things get co-opted? Um, how, do how does this perspective get co-opted by power as well? Sure. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a very interesting um, question. I, I, I'd say just with the caveat that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a digital security researcher, and so I would defer to others in the room as far as of, 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 a, of a genuine answer to that question. Um, but I guess I would say one of the things that is interesting, or rather two things that are, are interesting are, there's the question of keys, again, that, that, that I mentioned. Um, there were some interesting uh, articles that I read recently that discussed the difference between having a numeric keypad on your phone for police to get access to versus having your fingerprint to access your phone and the different search warrants that are necessary for the key that you choose to 
have, and I believe it's you have, if you, and again, I, I'll defer to, to someone who knows more, but that if it's the numeric number, it's a different kind of warrant and is more secure for you than it would be if they simply need a fingerprint to unlock the key. And I think that kind of thing is quite interesting, knowing how to lock something based on what keys would, or access to keys would be used to get into it, I think is, 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 is quite interesting. Um, but another thing that just comes to mind is this notion of, um, well, I guess I'd use the word jurisdiction, I think, in a, in a somewhat large, larger sense, where if you can, what I think is interesting is that, for example, if you've got information that you don't want a certain authority to get access to, and you can place the information technically and through servers in a different jurisdiction, whether it's overseas or it's on, you know, Sealand, the, the legendary micronation in the North Sea here off the coast of England, um, you know, you get into a, a question of how does the FBI, how does Interpol, how do people get access to things? Um, and so what's interesting about that is that you could argue then in this case, for the sake of this conversation, that, um, you know, that is, a, that is an attempt to sort of asymptotically move the clothes ever further and further away from the people who are trying to get access to or define it. Um, and I think that that kind of, uh, it's like an acrobatics of enclosure that you could, be, you could argue is happening with this jur the jurisdiction of data. Uh, and also then I think in, 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 you know, it'll sound like an absurd, you know, maybe like late 1970s era Peter Eisenman graduate project, but you could imagine a architectural design challenge to create the most complex clothes imaginable through things that could be added to the external um, facing surfaces of a building where it doesn't just have one facade or four facades or the fifth facade of the roof, but is this crystalline and strange um, cluster of possible closes that could be argued about in different uh, levels of a, of a, of a, of a, of a law, lawsuit or, or not lawsuit, but a, a, a burglary case. Um, and so I wonder then, would that be the equivalent of, of, of switching up jurisdictional questions? Or could you even put part of your building through the close in, a, in another county so that you could, uh, you could charge someone with different laws in that, in that part of the house? But um, in, in any case, yeah. I, and that sounds like Wasserstein Hall to me, except much more beautiful. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do others have questions? Since you mentioned the uh, New York City Universal Key and the New York Post, I recall there being, I don't know if this was a really true story or just a fantasy, but when the New York Post published their article about that, they put a huge picture of the key on the front page yeah. And that led to at least some people speculating about whether that was a high enough res picture that somebody could feed it to a 3D printer and duplicate the key. Um, yeah. Amy, know more about that? You or anybody else? One of the first things I did this year was print a master set. Literally in Berkman, printed a master set of the TSA keys, the luggage keys, and the 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 luggage keys that the TSA uses uh, to be able to have access to your to your luggage when they come through, uh, we printed a full set on a 3D printer over at the Berkman Center. Um, that yeah, from a picture rendered out and then and then um, and then printed. So yeah, I mean doing that for uh, I mean you know keys are more or less difficult to do um, uh, based on the the way that they're they're keyed. But yeah, that is absolutely and absolutely technically possible. Yes. Yeah. Um, just to briefly speak to that and tie it back to the um, fire regulations, mm -hmm. uh, the thing to remember about keys is that the construction of the cylinders follow rules across the entire production line. So even just a brief glimpse at a key in any angle or dimension 
gives you enough information that by following the rules that you know exist, you can get a close enough guess. Um, so even if you have something very blurry, something at a horrible angle, if you are aware of the codes, um, as Jeff was pointing out with fire codes and understanding how to move around buildings as a result of them, if you understand the, the rules in place, you can reproduce them from very little additional information. I think it's worth pointing out that, that Skylar, who just spoke up, picks locks. Um, so, <laughs> so he knows. Um, there is a sense in which uh, beauty and elegance uh, is usually found in the way people find clever way to, ways to work around the set of constraints that they face to achieve a particular goal. So if you think about the design of a building, you face economic and physical constraints, and beauty and elegance is going to be found in the way you're going to be clever about working around those. Uh, you talk about uh, beglars. And they view buildings and design and architecture through a totally different uh, set of constraints that they face. So they view beauty and elegance in a very different way, I suppose. How would an architecture or design project that would try to see beauty and elegance through the eyes of a beggar look like, according to you? Are, are you trying to think about those issues? Is there somebody out there who thinks about that? Yeah, um, yeah there, I guess there's a couple of examples that spring to mind. Um, there's, a, there's an example like used in the book, uh, which is a, a Canadian artist who now lives in London named Janice Kerbel. And um, she's most famous for, for a project, uh, uh, the 15 Lombard Street project, which was the elaborate casing of a bank in London and then turned it into an art project about a bank heist. Um, but she's got another project that, um, unfortunately, I, I believe the name is Home Fittings. Um, I'd have to refer to my own book, uh, uh, embarrassingly. Um, but uh, Home Fittings, the, the notion was that she found an old house in London and then went through it and noted all of the places where you could walk across this old rickety uh, hardwood floor that makes a lot of sound um, where the shadows are being cast at different times of day. And she noted all the places where you could stand without casting a shadow and where you could walk, even with exaggerated Monty Python-like steps, um, in order to walk through the house without ever making a sound. Um, so that's an art project, of course. That's not a work of architecture. But nonetheless, I think it's a really interesting, somewhat comedic, but um, elegant way of dealing with, with a, a strange constraint in that case, which is not casting shadows and not producing sound. Um, so stealth and into into sensory registers, um, but yeah, there's um, another way of of I think approaching the built environment. I mean, a lot of examples that come up. Um, you know, this this will sound almost uh, disappointingly basic, but you know, are <clears throat> excuse me, the, the sliding paper doors of Jap traditional Japanese architecture, where uh, you know something can be a wall in one instant and then an opening in the next. Um, what is the more radicalized pursuit of that type of architecture, where? You go from wall to opening. You go from perhaps window to door. Um, you get into a world of, of uh, surfaces and apertures that are constantly changing and in dialogue. That would be quite elegant and quite interesting and would be thinking like a burglar in the sense that a burglar doesn't necessarily, you know, I mean, because the example I give is that, or, or, or often give is that, you know, let's say there's something behind that door that is quite valuable and I want access to it and there's a lock on that door. Um, but if these walls are drywall, they're not going to be alarmed. Nobody, very few people um, outside of the State Department or, you know, military installations will have alarms inside their walls. Um, so what my point is, you would just go through the wall. A burglar would see a door where we see walls. Um, and so you know, the, this Japanese example that I'm giving would simply be sort of a, a materialization of that strategy. And so I think that that's, that's interesting as well. But so you know, I, I also, yeah, the, the, there's the architecture of handholds. There's the architecture of shortcuts. Um, a lot of this can be 
unfortunately very kitschy. So I think that one of the problems with thinking like a burglar and trying to design a house for that is that it's quite easy not to find elegance, but to find almost like Disneyland kind of you know home. Um, you know, where you might have uh, a secret passage where I pull a copy of Oscar Wilde out of the bookshelf and next thing you know, I've got access to, you know, the, my liquor cabinet or that kind of thing. And so, you know, you can get into things that are quite goofy. But I do think that there would be a really interesting way to combine sort of the elegance of the burglar with architectural thought and architectural theory. Um, but then also, I, once again, I really do genuinely think that the, the clothes, I think it's just a fascinating thing that you could play with architecturally and through design. Um, I just want to first start by thanking you for your talk, which has been really amazing and really, truly eloquent and very thoughtful um, throughout. I'm wondering particularly about in this work how you thought about like making contact with like uh, people who had participated in burglary or, you know, the ethics or legality or morality of sort of what you've particularly said is as a romanticized version of a profession that involves theft uh, sometimes. Sure. Um, so, uh, and how you sort of thought about your book in that context. Sure. Um, yeah, it was interesting for me because, you know, normally, you know, I didn't go to journalism school, and so the notion of kind of feeling out how that would work was, was always interesting. And so, on, you know, on one case there, or on one side, rather, there were examples of interviews that, you know, normally I, I would either pay someone to transcribe this stuff just because it takes so long and I didn't want to do it, um, or you even use an online service like Mechanical Turk where you can get people to transcribe for, for cheaper. Um, but then when you've got a transcript that is all about you know, how to rip off coin, <laughs> coin dealers and hotels and that kind of thing, um, you, know, you, you think twice about doing that. And so there were, there were definitely transcripts that I just was like, this is not a good idea, especially when um, if you're sending out the audio file of someone who is speaking to you anonymously and doesn't want their name in a book, then you don't want to send their audio file out into the world so that just in case they stick it on a website, oh, I remember, I remember transcribing this interview, you know, and then you've, you've ruined this person's life. Um, but, the, but, but at the same time, yeah, w was I in possession of information about burglaries in Toronto that would have been useful for police investigations um, was a question that was interesting. I don't think it, um, <laughs> it doesn't, it isn't as nearly as complicated as that the example that people are talking about right now, which is that extraordinary article in the New Yorker where uh, author Gay Talese um, went into a motel that was rigged out like a surveillance apparatus for the owner to watch uh, guests having sex, and he and he participated in the voyeurism, and then wrote an art, and then never told the police, and then and potentially witnessed a murder, and then he wrote an article for the New Yorker twenty years later. And so I think that's a, that's a bit more of a the sort of the Looney Tunes example of that. Um, but so from the other side, though, the other the other challenge was not just um, well, there were many many challenges actually. One was if I'm going to cover a burglar and listen to his story. What do I either, what am I getting into morally, but also how is that person depicted in the book? And similarly, you know, uh, even speaking with Skylar and other people in the Locksport community, you know, when you, when you sort of, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, the, the bull in a china shop to a certain extent. You know, I come walking into these, these uh, Locksport events and asking everybody questions about burglary. I mean, the response is, you know, kind of a big middle finger in the sense that, like, we're not burglars and these aren't questions that are, you know, it, it's a bit like going to, um, I mean, the example I use in the book is like going out to the suburbs and finding people who listen to Black Sabbath, and then and then t talking to them about Satanism. It just sort of feels like there's there's a there's a, there are a lot of assumptions here that are are, are foolish, and, and, you know. and so. Um, but then from the, the other side, then was also uh, uh, was was convincing police to let me do things with them and FBI agents, and um, that was also tricky. So you know, the, uh, w w for example, one uh, one of the most fun aspects of the research that I didn't get a chance to talk about today was. Um, flying with the air support division of the LAPD, 
Um, and so what I wanted to do in, in a nutshell was basically was literally see the city from an aerial view, was to understand what the grid of the metropolis appears to be from an aesthetic point of view, um, but then also how are police tactics applied from the air, and do they, what do they see? And you know, we mentioned that uh, the uh, we were talking rather earlier about like the the Jack Daxman approach to fire code, but the police have a sort of similarly interesting approach to the addressing system that 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 gives Los Angeles its coherence, and the notion that they too have this sort of um, they call it the rules of four, but this this almost mathematical or in the book I refer to it as a numerological insight into LA. Um, I think is it was was really fascinating. But so I mentioned this because you know my initial questions again were were ridiculous, and and you know they were uh, asking you know so you know if uh, if if I, if I commit a bank robbery, how can I get away from the helicopter? You know, and and, <laughs> and just questions that for obvious reasons led to immediate dead ends in the interview, and um, and 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 weren't easy to 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 continue past. And so, yeah, that, that I mean that was fun. Just you know as, as just like the technique of a writer. I mean I guess I had to I had to figure out the questions to ask that I knew would lead to the same kind of answer, but yet would be very indirect or roundabout, uh, you know, asking about successful, uh, or rather criminals who have successfully evaded police helicopters in the past, and what they did, as opposed to, like, what can I do? How, like, how can I tell, you know, my friends to, to do X, Y, and Z? Um, but so those were, those were all interesting, you know, not, not, uh, not coming off as, uh, yeah, sort of a, a haywire writer who didn't know, doesn't know what he was doing. And I, but, over there, we have one here, and then below. I also want to say that that Jeff wrote about that the helicopter flights over LA in the New York Times Magazine. When mm-hmm. when was that? Uh, Ten days ago, two yeah, two so, weeks ago. So that's that's definitely worth a look. Sure. There's a question over there. During your remarks, you mentioned that rates are down all over the world except for in China. Oh, yeah. What might what might explain China's uh, rise in rates? Um, well, there are a couple things there. Um, one, I just briefly, I, I want to mention this because I, I thought it was so great. There was an article that, that uh, I mentioned in the book where it talks about burglary rates around China, and uh, it tries to apply statistical sort of mathematical analysis to it. Um, but what's really great about it was that it, it came to these amazing conclusions, which were that um, burglary tends to happen when uh, te- air, air temperature, ambient air temperature is something like 7 degrees Fahrenheit to 92 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and that uh, when, when wind speed... Is, is like less than 20 miles an hour. Like it was just all of these insane statistics that you know got somebody a grant at a university. Um, but yet we're, I mean, it's very difficult to do anything in China when the temperature is not seven degrees Fahrenheit to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that that's when burglars would choose to strike. Um, but so there's a lot of theories about why that is happening. Um, you know, uh, the, and they boil down to a lot of just the, the rapidity of urbanization in China. You have a lot of things happening, which is that people unused to security needs and therefore not locking up possessions in a way that they would have in a different architectural type if you're not living in a multi-unit tower and you're used to living in a village or if you're not even used to living in um, cities at all that you are not yet used to self-protection um, which is you know even to, cert- to a certain extent is true uh, in a, for why a lot of the burglary rates were high in the United States at one point um, but then also uh, from the flip side people coming from uh, environments where they are now not sure how to make a living or kind of being left out of the economic plans uh, are needing to turn to other ways of uh, making a living. And so you find a kind of a really interesting, I suppose you could say, ethical quandary in the speed with which a city grows because there is a, you know, you could almost, <laughs> to, 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 in, an, in homage to the article I just cited, you could probably cite on a graph somewhere you know, burglary rates versus speed of architectural construction. 
and you could argue that you know there's a the the morals or, or the the sense of needing to protect oneself haven't caught up yet. So those those, those are the theories. But but um, again, I'm saying that based on on uh, having read about burglary rates in China. But that those those were the explanations that I understood. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. So I, to build on some of the previous questions, uh, I mean whether it's construction of architecture or the anatomy of keys for lockpicking or um, how we set up our secure digital information. What it sounds like is that teaching others to think like burglars, like hackers, sounds like it would be at least go a, a decent distance in helping people to feel more secure and helping people to um, know that they're securing their information and their property effectively. So in your ex based on your experience, what do you think the best way to help people f think in this matter would be, uh, regardless of the particular type of security we're talking about? Well, I think I guess there are two ways to answer that. I mean, one is in the particular, and I think that that is literally just look at your house from the point of view of knowing that people who want to break into it might be trying to hide behind the same privacy fence that you use in order not to be seen by your neighbors, or the tree that you love outside your bedroom window that has a nice branch that you fantasize about climbing. Um, you know, the same kinds of things that you might notice. Uh, you know, unlit si secondary spaces on the on the side of a house. Uh, the fact that you could maybe crawl up uh, a pile of things behind, like a wood pile in the backyard, and get onto a roof, and thus onto a balcony, et cetera. Um, you know, just literally and and step by step, look at your house differently and start closing down those routes of access. Um, but in the abstract, I mean, it's a. I think it's a more subtle answer in that I think that you, because then this is no longer just a question about architecture. Obviously, it's a question about um, digital security. It's a question about even a creative response to literature or how one might interpret something otherwise. And I think that that's by looking at something from unexpected points of view and perhaps even mixing disciplines in order to ask. I mean, because one of the things that I've always enjoyed about writing about architecture is, um, you know, if a, some news comes up, uh, you know, well, in the material sciences where some new uh, substances have been invented, the question is not... Uh, you know, do I do I fully understand the, the the chemistry behind this object? But what would an architect do with it? You you ask these sorts of questions, or if something comes up in the architecture world, you can say, well, what would a novelist do with this information? And you can come up with a, a quite compelling article about that kind of thing. Um, you know, what would uh, a filmmaker do with this this uh, event that just happened in a museum? Um, when you start asking by mixing disciplines, I think that you can start combining approaches that's similar to this and is not specifically geared around security. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, switches lenses and, and allows you to see something from a different point of view. And I think that's, that's always a really, really important thing to do. Well, that was a terrific um, concluding question, which is fortunate because we are out of time. Um, thank you, Jeff. Well, thanks.